NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever you are. Good, 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 good June. Uh, wow, I can't believe it's June already. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Brian Ripley Crandall from the Connecticut Writing Project. And once again, I'm thrilled to be here with Tanya Baker, Director of National Programs, for another episode of The Right Time. Believe it or not, this is our 24th episode in just over a year. When we pitched the idea of the Penguin Random House and Random House Children's Books, we never imagined it would take off as well as it did. Um, then again, where else in the nation is there a show that pairs incredible National Writing Project teachers like Kate Kennedy with incredible writers and memoirists like Abby Ifton? So Tanya, you know I'm super excited for tonight's show. In fact, I've been counting down the days for this one for months now. So how are you doing? I'm great. And I woke up this morning and said, oh, we're doing the right time, which is always my favorite thing. And it's I'm Dean Orfton, so Brian's going to be out of his mind with excitement. <laughs> we know that tonight's episode is extra special for you because of all the literacy work you and your teaching teams in Connecticut have done with immigrant and refu refugee youth. We also know that June 20th is World Refugee Day. And when you said, I wonder if we could get Abdi Nor Ifton for, to be a special guest in recognition of this celebration, I was like, oh, come on, really? But as usual, you came through and we did, and we are so excited. It's an honor to have the author of Call Me an American with us. But we also have the superpower of teacher Kate Kennedy, and they're both from Maine, my home state. So now I'm all excited about that too. And we're so happy to welcome you both to the show. Yeah, it is a main event. And I'm going to do a little bit of history about a world refugee on June 20th and then introduce Abby Nor Ifton. In 2001, on its 50th anniversary, the United Nations General Assembly declared June 20th as World Refugee Day, a time to honor the strength and courage of refugees worldwide and to encourage public awareness and support for the rights, the stories, and the plight of people who have fled their homes, neighbors, and lands as a result of violent conflicts or natural disasters. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, refugees are individuals who have been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, violence, um, well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, membership in a particular social group. Most likely they cannot return home or are afraid to do so. War and ethnic, tribal and religious violence are leading causes of refugees fleeing their countries. Over the past three years, however, 79.5 million individuals have been forcibly displaced from home nations, 26 million as refugees. Half of these individuals are under the age of 18 and the numbers are growing every day. For these reasons, memoirs like Call Me American are important. Abdinor Ifton is a naturally gifted speaker. His story, one of 60 Peabody finalists in 2015, has been featured on various radio and television stations, most recently on CNN. Abdi's stories are personal narratives of his life growing up in a country shredded by a civil war and finished off by Islamists with the sheer luck to win a green card to immigrate to the United States in 2014. As a former refugee, a recent immigrant to the United States and a Muslim, Abdi has received requests to speak at TEDx events, universities and colleges in Maine. His new book, Call Me American, was recently adapted in 2018, or was named in 2018 as a finalist for a New England Booksellers Association Book Award. Um, 
also ironic. We can ha actually sing happy birthday to Abdi Ifton because June 20th is also a special day as it is his born day. Um, Delacour Press, an imprint of Random House Children's Books, adapted his memoir for young adult readers with Max Alexander. And so it's happy book birthday, it's World Refugee Day, it's happy, happy Abdi Ifton birthday, it's an Abdi, Abdi birthday to you, Abdi birthday to you. Okay. And so <laughs> I am super excited about having you on the show and I can't wait for this conversation. And you can introduce Kate for me. Can. Oh, sorry, that was empty. There he is. That should have been empty. <laughs> I'm not so good on the slides. <laughs> Happy birthday, empty. Uh, as a gift to you, I reached out to another Mainer who connects Kate and me, Rich Kent, and we said, asked him who would be the perfect teacher to bring tonight's conversation forward. And I should have known, I should have been able to figure it out myself, but he recommended our, our shared friend, Kate Kennedy. Uh, who is also a Mainer, as we said, so it's a main event. Uh, it's my honor and pleasure to introduce my friend Kate. She is the author of Skin, a memoir and a novel, End Over End, two editions of short biographies entitled Maine's Remarkable Women, and many short pieces of fiction and nonfiction. For 20 years, Kate taught writing at Portland High School, then was the director of the Southern Maine Writing Project at the University of Southern Maine. She's still teaches occasional graduate seminars for the University of Maine. Kate lives in Cape Elizabeth. Important to this story, I think, Kate was also the first person to hold an, an MA of teaching English as a second language in Maine, which she earned at UCLA in 1972. When she moved to Maine in 1977 from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she had been the director of a free program for adults in ESL, there was a little called the Teach ESL in Maine. But the longer she stayed at Portland High, the more she was able to teach students from around the world, mostly refugees, an experience she describes as delightful. So Kate, obviously, you seemed like the just right interviewer for tonight's show. We are super excited to step out of the way and offer the show to the two of you. Kate will ask that you start us off with a writing prompt and should viewers want, they can hit pause when they're watching and do the writing prompt before they continue on. But we'll just start by introducing it. Well, thank you. This is wonderful, Abdi. I'm so delighted to meet you that we're fellow Mainers, but and we live probably what 40 miles apart, <laughs> but we, we've yet to meet. Um, for this prompt, think of a time in your own life when you suddenly saw someone well known to you in a new and perhaps um, more realistic light. And this is based on a number of times Abdi told us about experiences in his growing up years when he, his attitude toward someone close to him, someone in his life changed, was transformed. And uh, I think this is something that we share maybe around the world, that as we grow up, our attitudes toward people change, they mature. Some of these are painful, some of these are really illuminating. So. I'll leave it at that. Good awesome. And we will leave you to your conversation. And we'll see you back in a little bit. Abdi, I feel as if we are kind of uh, meeting over a cup of tea somewhere. <laughs> we can imagine, can't we? Right? <laughs> That's Kate. what writers do. Ah, yeah. Kate, well, 
yes, you mentioned that we both are Mainers. Not only that, there's something else that actually brings us closer together, which is that we are both writers. And I've actually been on several, several Zoom calls over the past 15 months. And I have not had one like the one we had with Brian and Tanya. They brought so much energy into this. I could say I was a little bored when I got on this Zoom call about 15, 20 minutes ago. I'm fired up. So I'm Me really, yes, I'm really looking forward to having this awesome conversation with you, Kate. So well, writers like to talk. We'll talk, we'll talk a little shop, talk shop, <laughs> shop talk. <laughs> um, the, the prompt asks us to think about adults, particularly in our lives, who um, we look at one way, and then as we get older and our viewpoint maybe broadens or certainly changes, we, we change that, we adapt it, our relationships evolve. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about how your relationship to America, what you thought about before you came, and then when you came here at, to Maine, um, how that changed, I'm sure it must have, but I would love to hear uh, what you have to say. So um, Kate, to respond to that really good question. Um, one thing I can say is I miss the feelings that I used to have for America. You know, there was, there was this uh, incredibly sort of burning desire, you know, in, 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 in the person. And this is what I felt in Somalia. The, the fact that I was facing a challenge and to overcome that challenge and to reach the goals and ambitions where um, I felt like one day landing on an American soil, right? Stepping out of an airplane, waving to America, getting that strong smell of America, that the, the first side of America, right? Those, those were these uh, incredibly moving sort of feelings inside me. Um, and even when I was in Kenya. Now, those have all evaporated. They don't exist anymore, right? Because I'm living in it. And also, unfortunately, um, I would say <laughs> the times that I have spent in this country have not been easy times. Um, the first evening that I landed, um, for those who remember the history, this was August 11th, and Ferguson, Missouri was on fire. Uh, angry uh, Americans were burning, you know, vehicles and facing police because the police have brutally murdered uh, an 18-year-old young African-American by the name Michael Brown. And there I was. I was in Logan Airport and I haven't slept for the, for the last 21 hours of the flight. And I was very, very excited. My, um, and I, I basically mentioned this in the book as well. You know, my eyes were glued on the screen and, 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 and you know, as we flew over in the darkness, flew over the Atlantic Ocean, I was expecting that first light of America coming into sight. And then it did slowly sort of like zoomed in and this was Boston. 
on the first time I saw a car moving, because that's the first thing you see. You don't see humans first, right? The, the streets and everything else. This, this was amazing. But on the other side, there were Americans who were hurt and going through this trauma and the, the beginning of Black Lives Matter because Black folks were not only incarcerated, but also chased after and, and sort of like murdered. And um, I think I haven't really absorbed everything at the moment. Um, but to give you a short answer, when I look at it right now, I, I see everything that I felt in the past to be a sort of a distant memory that comes back to me, not quite often, but sometimes. There are times where I would be walking through the woods and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, that amazing feeling of the beauty of this country, the amazement, right? The opportunities, the magnificent um, uh, possibilities that this country provides sort of like come to me. And then I try to actually grapple on that moment, not let it go. See, I, I want this. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm traumatized every single day. I'm worried of so many things in the news, conversation with friends, all the activism work that we do, everything that we do these days is just fear. Um, fear because it, it, the system has created fear, right? And so that, that America that, that, that existed, um, um, you know, in my mind, no longer exists. So it just only comes to me sort of like a dream, even though I'm actually living in America. But that happens to, to, to look more like a dream that has only existed in the past, but it's now coming back to visit me. And when it comes to me, I really want to hug it and hold it tight and keep it to me and say, I want that, I want that feeling. I want the feeling of, of, of seeing America as a place of possibilities, not, not as a place where I could get murdered, right? And it's just myself, you know, I'm in the woods. So in other words, I'm hoping that someday this country becomes the country where other refugees who are currently living in Egypt, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, on and on and on, that they start dreaming about this country as, as much as I have dreamed about it. Because there's something amazing with it. You know, it, 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 takes, it takes you into, into, into such a journey. In fact, it sometimes saves you your own life. For example, I think if I hadn't really put much efforts into learning English and wanting to live in America, I could, I could become a member of a gang in Somalia. That was, that was an easy entrance, right? It existed, there, there was that opportunity uh, and I could, I could have taken that up. The reason I did not do that was because I had this dream of going and living in this sort of like a fictional place called America. I'm saying fictional because it doesn't look like what I really no. you know, had, had imagined. Well, you're not alone in that. So many of us who have lived our whole lives here feel that way. That it's a, uh, it's been quite heartbreaking. I I have to say and discouraging. Um, and more and more people want to come here. They don't necessarily even want to come here, but they have to go somewhere. And the pathway here sometimes is easier than other places. Um, we've become very close and sort of unofficially adopted a family from um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
and their story of fleeing after terrible atrocities, fleeing for their lives with a small child. And they say, we didn't want to come here. We, this was not our dream. Um, but they're happy to be safe here. They feel more or less safe. Although what's going on with our racial injustice, terrible history of that is, is bewildering to them. They're still in that kind of a transition phase. Um, so you've somehow, it, what, what it sounds like to me, Abdi, is, is not only was it a, a life-changing dream, you moved from being a young man, quite a young man, a child really, um, and then you grew up. And so there's that feeling of what happens when you mature and you see a more rounded picture of people and of life. But I, um, I, I join you in feeling that we have to work so hard to change and make that dream come alive again. I'm sorry that that, I, I can relate to what you're saying. Of course, I don't live it the way you do, but. Absolutely, absolutely. I think at the end of the day, what we all want is um, uh, to live in peace more than living in prosperity and, and, and becoming wealthy. I, I don't think that's anything that anybody that I know from Somalia is actually thinking about, right? Um, and like you said, growing up is, is, is such an amazing experience because you, you grow up to, to feel more empowered in some ways but also more responsible and feeling the, the weight of the responsibilities that lay ahead of you, you know, or with you. Um, uh, so uh, over the years, I have uh, basically taken an oath to support my family, no matter where they are. And that has been a long time decision of mine from age seven, because, uh, with, with everything else that we went through, uh, I would say one positive thing that came out of my childhood life, uh, despite the horror stories, you know, the death and destruction and displacement, the bondage that happened between and within my family, the relationship between myself and my brother, which is rock solid, the relationship between my mother and myself, which is rock solid. The relationship between the three of us, a triangle relationship. Mm -hmm. And in the middle sits my, my other sister, Nima, who's made it, is living, has five kids. So, you know, and um, I think it, it is what actually makes me a better human most of the times. And every time that I, I haven't seen them for 13 years, I'm talking about my mom and my mm -hmm. sister. So as hard as that feels, you know, when, um, in America, we have emotional footage sometimes where a military serving in, in Iraq comes back after two years and, and pops up in a surprise Thanksgiving appearance, you know, and we see all the tears on, on family's eyes. Those kind of footage make me cry. Make mm -hmm. me cry because I can understand what actually a family reunion, you know, would feel like. Um, so what I'm trying to say here is I am not expecting to get my family here in the US. That actually should not be the only choice. 
And you said, Kate, in your earlier, uh, your, the kids that you have adopted, they were not interested in coming to the United States. My mother is exactly the same. I mean, she's, she said, if I find peace in Somalia, that's my heaven. Right. right? Where Home is wherever you feel safe. Right. And participate in whatever, you know, is out there. She's not safe. And she's not participant. They're not voting. They're, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's a country that's still going through a war. But she's not complaining at all. Mm. She says, we're fine. You're sending us money. We have roof over our heads. We have food on, on our table. And I think, and my story is slightly different because I was always rebellious and crazy and, 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 and dreaming big and wanting things that I can't even afford, which uh, I think at the end of the day, my mom wins because I, I remember been telling her that live in the U.S. is a lot better and, uh, you know, everything would be fine. Um, not really, right? I mean, yeah, I'm working. That's the better side of, of being here and being able to provide for them. But at the end of, this, at the, end of the day, she's actually, she's actually the winner. And, 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 and I've given that up to her. Um, so I'm not rebellious anymore. And I actually am very consultative with her. Um, in issues related to our family and, and, and other things. And, and I'm really feeling um, great with that. So it's amazing to, to be grown up, to, to become uh, a, a certain age where you feel some things that I have done in the past are actually quite not acceptable, but I have done it anyways. Um, you know, and then some of the things that I have done in the past that there are a lot of them that I'm very proud of. And it actually includes my determination uh, and insisting on things that I that I envision and I want. Um, but then again, there are other things where I feel I was too childish. You know, I was um, not really. You know, I haven't. You know, uh, if there's any lesson that I have I have to learn is to um, to, to um, number one, uh, not assume that everything that glitters is gold you know there's that expression <laughs> so and now going back again you know being refugee and, and we're all hustling to get to get here mostly because uh we're running away from persecution we're running away from uh, uh other troubles you know piles of issues that you can mention um you won't escape those things here as well they they do come with you as long as you're on planet earth so there's no dead end there's there's no this is the time you can relax, you can sit. So it's a journey, it continues. So as we not only publish memoirs and other books, but I think the journey is on and it continues. And that is how I live my life. I live my life more like a, a, a pencil, you know, which keeps writing and writing and writing. If the pages are done, the book is, is done, you go to the next one, which is always available and you keep writing. And that's how, you know, I see life. It's continuous until you can no longer do that. I wanted to ask you a, a particular writer's question. Um, your, your first sentence in the book, Abdi, let me, I need to read it here. Um, I was born under a neem, is that it? Neem tree? Correct. Neem tree, yep. I was born under a neem tree, probably in 1985. Bang. Right off the start, you present to... Um, certainly a Western audience who's not particularly well-informed about Somalia, uh, a tree we've never heard of, and you're not sure when 
what year you were born, which are to many Americans surprising. But then you go, clever writer, you go on and you explain just enough so you can keep telling your story. And I was very impressed with that um, ability that because the complex, complicated history of Somalia, the clans, the, the civil war, the Islamists, I mean, on and on, there's so much that, that would be confusing and wouldn't mean so much in your telling us, except that you set a context. And I, I, I wondered if you could um, spill the beans on that a little bit. Tell us a little more. Okay, uh, number one, I, I wanted to, in, in that particular part of the story where you read, I wanted to uh, humanize the story mm -hmm. that I was going to tell. In fact, most of the Somali stories are not humanized. I mean, look at Hollywood has made a couple of movies about Somalia. Right. And it's about uh, Americans, the heroes, going down, shooting at, or going into a fight with the warlords and escaping. And the, the right. picture that you, the pictures that you see, it's a bunch of people running around with an AK-47. When they speak, the words that come out of the Somalis is anger, frustration, I will kill you, I will murder you, I will do this, I will do that, right? Right. So with that, I think the general audience, whether they're Americans or Europeans or others who have followed Somalis' stories by the paper, as well as by the, by the screen, they have actually walked away with some sort of a story where they are not even interested in understanding the human stories. Are these people born? If they are, what does it look like? Do they get married? You know, do they work? Um, those kind of things. And that is where I wanted to sort of like strike right at the beginning. Hey, I, I wasn't actually born in a hospital. I was born probably mm -hmm. 1985, right? Um, and then as you read through that, that story, you sort of like come to realize that Oh, interesting. The husband actually sort of like clears the house. He's not there. Um, he lets the, his wife hang out with the, with the ladies. They come together. This is all this perfume, awesome, you know, amazing, smelly stuff that they, they do with the baby. And they celebrate together, whereas the men celebrate together. And it's such a, such a sort of like a, a connected, um, in some ways, sort of like family affair, where, right? You know, where um, snacks are involved, uh, parties are involved but it, it, not necessarily the way we do here. Um, we're not talking about the husband holding the baby, you know, stuff like that. It's different, but that's our story. You don't have to hate it for us, right? That's a human story uh, that does exist. And then we come up, you know, I mean, I grew up, I, I have all kinds of things and my dad is very supportive. My mom is very supportive. Um, they worked hard to build that life. Then things happen, uh, we lose almost every, well, almost everything except our own lives, right? We lost our house. Um, my mom lost her jewelry. My dad lost his job and we're fleeing. We're walking down the road. So what is the other story that I want the audience to follow? I want them to follow this, the strength and resilience of these families. This mother is not giving up. She's heavily pregnant. She's holding one of our babies and she's carrying one on her back and one is trailing behind her, right? And she's stacking them from the city to the wilderness to the small towns and circling back 
coming back to the city and sleeping with them on the side of the road on top of the graves and telling them stories that would send them to sleep with an empty belly, right? And when people read those stories, I want them to understand that, yes, there's a war, there's conflict, there's death, but underneath, there's a human story. People can get caught up in these situations, but we also need to uncover those stories that nobody ever talks about. So I'm not really writing this book to talk about what the militias look like and who's fighting who, more like you know uh, what you might read on a long piece on New York Times Sunday morning, right? When they talk about, oh, there's a war in Somalia, so let's talk about who's fighting who. That, that was not basically what I was actually you know, interested. I'm, I'm someone who was born in this, into this culture. And I think the feedback that I received from predominantly people who read the book is just how amazing I've really portrayed the, uh, these individualistic story, individual stories, a mother, the father, the kids, the sister, the, the bondage, you know, the, 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 the brother, the brother is coming together and become supportive of their families. Um, so Kate, I hope that answers the question. Yes. yes. As I thought, I lose track of what I was asked, so. Yeah. Um, another writing question. Were there parts of this book that were relatively easy to write? Now that's maybe laughable because writing is difficult, but sometimes there's a flow to it. And then other times it's, uh, 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 at least that, that's how it is for me. And I, I wanted to ask you about that in your own work. Correct. Uh, well, let's see. Um, there are, I wouldn't say easier, but there, you know, I mean, it's a memoir, of course. Um, right. so, uh, the better your memories are, the better you, you, uh, you can write uh, on, those, on those things. I would, uh, Kate, I would actually say um, most of my uh, stories before America are pretty much eventful, right? I mean, when, yeah, one day I get handcuffed by the police. The next day, again, I get handcuffed by a different police. And then the third day, they were knocking on the door and I ignored it. So how do you forget those, those eventful days? even if you don't really take notes of them, which I actually did because I was emailing back and forth with all the journalists, everything that happened. So it was more of a, it was more of a, I had more stories than, than, than what I wanted to tell. I mean, too much of them that the journalists I was sharing with them weren't even quite sure which area to pick. So from chapter 14 and up, uh, it was actually a lot easier for me to um, basically go back on my Gmail and choose uh, 2015 or 2014 or 2012, 2011, and go through all the emails and pick all the pictures that I sent slash the long email that followed with it, which I detailed some of those events. Mm -hmm. um, so I gathered those and put them together. And um, one thing else that was also, that made it a lot easier was, um, this American Life is a, is, a, is, a, is a national podcast, pretty much. Several, many Americans actually listen to it. I did a documentary with them when I was still in Kenya. And that documentary is entirely based on winning the green card lottery, which is how I got here. Up until, you know, a, a 12 months process. So we documented almost everything that happened in between. 
going to the US embassy, being rejected and going back and rejected again and going to the police station and almost got arrested. I mean, all these eventful things. So I really, really, really thought that that was so exciting for me to, to sort of like see the story right in front of me. And all I needed was to put that into a book, sort of like move it and put it into a book. Um, so that was very helpful. The, um, can I talk about the most challenging part of the book? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, well, <laughs> of course, childhood stories are really challenging. You can't remember a lot. Uh, and I needed the help of my mother in that. Um, so she worked with me really a lot on, on from chapter number one up mm -hmm. to six and seven. And she, um, she was crying quite often because uh, she, she didn't, she, you know, she, she didn't understand why I was insisting on, on going back to, to, to the terrifying stories. I mean, I wanted my mom to, to talk about the day that we lost my own sister from malnutrition, for example. Mm -hmm. And my mother thought that we buried my sister and, and the story, you know, we did not, it, it's our family tradition. We did not really want to talk about that because it's painful. It's, you know, it hurts all of us when we talk about it. But then when I started writing, I realized, no, I have to break this tradition in, in my family, which includes, I have to really talk to my mother about the death that happened in our family, the separation of family, the, the terrifying moments that we had in our, you know, in our family. And she's still in Somalia, so it doesn't help at all. Right, she she still lives through that. Um, I don't. I, I left 13 years ago, and here I am. Uh, I could be sitting in a Starbucks when it's snowing outside, and be able to work on on my piece and and asking my mother and all those stories. Uh, to her, felt like a little bit of betrayal of our family values. Um, but I had to uh, come up with all the excuses to explain to her that this is extremely important that we need to tell this story to the rest of the world. So that was really challenging. And I did not want to see my mother cry. Mm -hmm. um, so I made her cry. I made her cry by asking tough questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I hung up a lot because I could not hear that. I could not hear my mother sobbing or crying. You know, it was, it was very painful. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was very challenging as well. I would say so. I think a memoir, um, in some ways asks us to confront things that are very difficult, very painful, and often there can be a problem in a family caused by a memoir. There can be a rupture of some sort, but um, it sounds like you all, um, your mother accepted what you were doing and loved you and she gave what, what she could. She, she did, she did, and I was very proud. Bet to do that. that comes across so often. You write of, write how proud you are of her, how strong she is. What a pillar of strength and um, faith. Uh, she's an amazing person in this book. She really is, as as is pretty much everybody, um, even the the man who. Uh, beat you at the madrasa was what came across as a, as a you know fascinating person um 
you mentioned really toward the end of the book that um, you would like to return to Somalia someday and run for president, but not as a member of your clan, but as a Somali American. I wondered if you could speak a little about that, if you're willing. So Kate, um, <clears throat> I mentioned that mostly because of course, you know, there is um, the, 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 the human desire to own power exists almost in every community. And uh, not only Somalia, it does, not only also the United States, I mean, it does exist. The right. smallest towns that you go, I mean, humans are, uh, there's always that part that's more dominant than the other. So even though we're actually uh, the most homogenous society in East Africa, people who speak the same language, same faith, uh, as far as I can remember, 10 million Somalis worship the same God. And that's all we have, right? Um, and we have the same skin color, but we're actually divided by clan lines. And um, so there is a system of governance as we speak today in Somalia and that system of governance um, disqualifies certain communities within a, certain tribes or clan within the Somalis. And my clan is one of those that are disqualified to not even be able to run for president, right? You can't because you're not powerful. Um, that, that is what we have. So when I wrote that part of the book, uh, I sort of like let the audience into like understanding the Somali clan lines, the Daro, the Hawiye. Uh, we talked about the Somali Bantu, which, has, which are also at the bottom. Nobody will give them even a member of parliament because they're considered not even acceptable, you know, in those societies. Mm -hmm. So what I was aiming at in that particular part of my story is to, um, is to say it's about time, right? It's about time. Uh, it's about, in America, it was about time to have a black person. It's about time to have a black female uh, vice president. I mean, we're, we, you know, see, see those interesting things. It does exist in Somalia. So, you know, and I said, well, listen, I would like to be the first Rahan Wayne, which is my clan, Rahan Wayne, Somali, Somali president, Rahan Wayne, president in Somalia. But wait, actually, that's not what I want to use. I'm not interested in going back to the clan names, right? I don't want my clan to start uh, running around and saying, oh, he's the first Rahan Wayne president. That's not what I'm interested in. What I actually want is to dismantle this clan system that basically discriminates its own people. So why don't I run the Somali American, someone who's educated here, uh, of course is a US citizen, but also wants to go back and to say, hey, I've actually learned a way to fight sort of discrimination, you know, create activism and sort of like bring people together. And that's something that I've learned when I was in the United States. But why don't we bring that here? Let's just put down the gun and pick up the pen. And let's start writing, not, well, not only writing, let's, let's start fighting um, through other means. You know, you can get to power no matter what clan you belong to, but let's consider merits uh, based on uh, your level of, you know, uh, understanding of how, how you want to run Somalia. And, and let's just make this more public than having clan run around and bringing someone that, that they like or desire 
not based on because of, of their understanding of the history of Somalia, but just because he belongs to this clan and he's a powerful, uh, a big mouth and someone who really speaks up for this clan and stuff like that. That's what we have right now. Um, so that's what I was aiming. And I really wanted the Somali readers particularly to get to that point and, and, and sort of like understand what I was talking about and create a conversation um, in this community. And I think luckily it's actually started uh, you people are talking about these issues and sort of like coming together and we're trying to dismantle that system that exists out there here so that someday there's a lot of us here now we're nearly a million uh, and, and we're um believe it or not we're actually uh the number one source of income for everybody who lives in somalia now and we're sending we're sending money back home and that is what our families are surviving on so we have the power. We actually have the power. Well, thank you. Wow. I wanted to ask you to read a little bit of your book, um, Abdi, but I have the, uh, the, the this issue of it, which is maybe the original, not, not the one adapted for younger readers. But do you have a copy of that? I do. Um, okay. Well, it's in the in your epilogue, and it's on page three hundred seven, mm -hmm. and it starts. But radical Muslims do not represent Islam. Could okay. you read read that paragraph? Sure. <laughs> yeah. But radical Muslims do not represent Islam, nor do they represent the hopes and dreams of Somali people. You can pray to Allah five times a day and still hold hands at the, uh, sorry, you, you can still hold hands at the movies. This I know. I know it's possible to save your camel milk and democracy, to chase tactics across the bush and stop at the red lights, to proudly name your nomadic ancestors and dance to hip hop at your own wedding. These are not contradictions or abominations, but reflections of our own universal humanity and yes, our shrinking world. How else to explain an African boy's love of the Terminator movies or African drumming classes being taught in American high schools? That's really wonderful. Thank you so much for, re for reading that. I couldn't wait to hear it in, in your own voice. Um, it's just, just great. You, you said you learned English by watching American movies and you were so beamed in on that. You were an incredibly focused young man and are, I'm sensing as a grown-up um, on learning that language. You saw it as a, a way to fulfill your dream was learning English. And, um, and you did it in a, in a kid's way. You know, you loved, um, Terminator and at the end of your see I'm bouncing up and down with excitement. <laughs> um, you you said um, that uh, ter the Terminator character um, what was in fact struggle in his own life the actor person str struggled in his life and and that was it, I found that very moving that you that you felt that connection and you seem in your writing and in your person to make connections across 
boundaries, traditional boundaries. And I admire that and have feel a lot of hope in that attitude and wanted to thank you for it. And now I want to ask you what you're wound up about these days, Abdi. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Kate, I, uh, uh, I just finished writing my next book. Oh, you did? Well, I mean, what else do you do during COVID, right? It's, it's right. We're, all, we're all, and especially in the wintertime, you know, we're sitting, <laughs> sitting by the fire and bringing a cup of coffee or tea. Right. Um, so um, it is, uh, there are, so, you know, what am I fired up? So there are a few things that have happened ever since uh, Call Me American was published. Um, those, the two major things that have been that do not include in the book are that my brother Hassan has come to Toronto, Canada. So he's, he's moved with his family and there's a lot, a lot that has happened to get him there. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, lots of hands that came together, held tight, trusted each other. And I'm really excited to get that story out there. It's like, it's, it's, you know, it's like, how do you get someone out into the world that they want to live in? And the other the second thing was when I published my memoir, Call Me American, I actually was not a US citizen. I was a green card holder. In other words, I was a permanent resident. Mm -hmm. and, and so the process of becoming a United States citizen has actually happened right after the book was published. Um, and I've only, taken the oath of naturalization in January, 2020, before the virus hit. Um, so I have a whole lot to say about that as well in this new book. And then, you know, there are, um, and you probably know this Kate, you know, as being an author, you learn a lot from your readers. You know, your readers get some sort of an interesting tech out of your story. And when you have a chat with them, they really remind you of what your next project should be. And I have come across hundreds of these examples. You know, I traveled as far as Arizona and, and Oregon, people who have read my memoir, and I enjoyed every minute of it. You know, during the presentation, yes, but also that little um, tea conversation or maybe dinner where you get to hang out with, um, with some of the people who write the book. I learned so much and I kept taking mental note every time someone said something. And so the two things that these people have actually reminded me, some of them are asking, how, how can I help a new American, an immigrant, a refugee, what can I do? So that's a big question. And it kept me thinking, what actually can one do? And when I thought I at least had some answers, you know, I poured it, I pour them down on the book. And then the other thing that comes is, what are the expectations of those who are coming here? What are the challenges that you face? And I'll give you one quick example. <laughs> when, I, when I came to Maine uh, six years ago, Kate, it, this was interesting, and I was having dinner with my family, the new family that adopted me into Yarmouth, Maine. I, um, I couldn't think after 20 minutes of the conversation, I was exhausted. I felt like I ran out of English and I wanted to just run upstairs and lay in bed and look up in the ceiling. And you have adopted some kids. You probably know the struggle, the psychological journey 
that that we go through in, into the new culture and you know and the new area and so i was worried that i was actually uh going to traumatize myself i mean yeah it's a white state it's a small town there aren't many things to do in yarmouth maine unless you know if you don't have a car you you're basically uh deprived of, of all the opportunities like you can't go to work you can't you know you can't do this and that so i was trapped i felt like trapped i kept walking back and forth in the street um 10 20 times a day or mm -hmm. i could just walk up to the river and i i i became this person who kept waiting for his documents to arrive for the first month and it was the most boring thing mm -hmm. you know basically being here and um so you know those 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 things have actually also helped me to 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 give the bigger message to those who will eventually migrate to the United States. In other words, you know, a guide to to the future uh, Americans that are coming here. Hmm. We're coming back in. Tanya and I have been texting throughout your conversation, and and it's not a it's not an episode of the right time until Tanya Baker says, okay, I'm crying now, I'm crying now. <laughs> and, and actually, I, I have to say what I, I started crying at the same, same place and Abdi was when you were honoring your mother and Kate was recognizing the love too. And you know, there's um, a mother that I worked very closely with in, in Syracuse, Maccabe Ability, Maccabe Ability, Abu and Lucini's mom. And I always say like, there's always Mother's Day and there's women's awards, you know, and like national awards for like out, these outstanding women who achieve things. And this Maccabe ability, a Liberian American mother, knowing what she still does for her sons and daughters and husband, what she does for her country, what she does for the United States. I don't think I know a more miraculous mother, you know, and she's, I'm giving her a recognition right here um, in the way that you were able to recognize your mother through writing, because when I look at people to look up to for hope and spirit and strength and intelligence, I think about what their mother did to keep them alive and still keep a smile on their face and still find a way to dance and to sing. And it's just, it's, whew, yeah. <laughs> so Tanya, how you doing? Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'm fine now. You don't have to tell everybody every time I tell you I cry. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm going to put the slides back up so Kate can take us out on a writing prompt, but I want to say it was particularly lovely to um, listen to an interview between two writers and the writerly way that Kate um, approached the book and then approached this opportunity to talk to Dee was really uh, enjoyable. So I appreciate that. Try oh, to share my screen again. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed talking to you and look forward to meeting you live. <laughs> okay, we, we should do that. We're Mainers. I know. <laughs> hey, <laughs> let's do it. Okay, okay, I'm supposed to take us out with a writing prompt. Um, Abdi has re recreated the real world of his tumultuous growing up time in Somalia, his luck and grit in coming to America and the ways he has persevered. He doesn't spare us the horrific violence, the losses and tragedies, the dislocation. But there is also much love and curiosity and good luck in this book. I think Call Me American gives us the real world as he experienced it. 
even though in a book you can't totally re recreate things, but it was, you did a wonderful job. So as a prompt, think about writers, think about your own real world, not the glossy surface we usually skate over, but the rawer, truer reality beneath the surface. You might start with these words, the real world goes like this. And there's uh, down below this slide, there's a little, I wanna give credit to the author of those words who um, is, his name is James Galvin and the book that he wrote is called The Meadow. And this is his very first sentence of his book. Of his, it's a novel. The real world goes like this. The never summer mountains like a jumble of broken glass. Snowfields weep slowly down. Chambers Lake ringed by trees gratefully catches the drip in its tin cup and gives the mountains their own reflection in return. This is the real world, indifferent, unburdened. That is gorgeous, Kate. And I'm, I'm actually thinking of the prompt and I can't wax poetically in the beautiful language <laughs> of that writer. But I was thinking in the last question that you asked Abdi, the real world goes like this. You have a responsibility to speak out. And that was the title of a poem that a Somali young man gave me um, in my own research. And when I, at one point I was feeling a, res, a tremendous responsibility of hearing all the history and not knowing how to tell the story in our culture, the Western culture of academic language, when it came from a kid who was just orally telling me. And he told me, you have a responsibility to speak out. I have a responsibility to tell you my story. You have a responsibility to share it with people in Western society so they know Somalians, so they know we exist. So they embrace history. The real world goes like this when you have a responsibility to speak out. So that's how I would answer that question. <laughs> thank you, Brian. Um, as you know, we always close the show by saying thank you. Thank you, Abdi. Thank you, Kate. It was really wonderful to listen to your conversation today. I also want to thank listeners who are tuned in or viewers. Um, we want to remind everybody that we have a lot of these right time shows and we would love for you to join us. And if you want to know when the next one's coming, you can follow us at National Writing Project on Twitter or on Instagram. You can join our Facebook community. If you're an educator who wants to talk to other educators, you can visit nwp.org where you could sign up for our newsletter and get a monthly update so you know when the next show is coming. And before we close, Abdi, I'm going to give you a little advice because I've been thinking about this. In the very near end of that half a year of winter in Maine, when you think spring will never come again, just write to Kate and say, Kate, can you write me one paragraph about what's going to happen next month? Because when I used to work regularly with Kate in writing project work, she would send me these notes that would be about like, I'd have to write this report. But before I tell you about the report, I want to tell you about the birds who just started singing in my backyard. <laughs> she is the greatest documenter of Maine Spring that I know. Oh, so now good. you're connected and she can provide that for you. Desperately seeking Maine Spring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kate, I, well, I, I would love, yeah, that's right. I, Kate, I, I'm not really very good at 
naming birds in Maine. They keep coming up. And I've just, it's actually this year that I learned the robins because they were nesting. That's good. That's a, that's a start. There you go. So <laughs> I will need your support on that, building okay. up the Maine culture. Okay, well, we will get together. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Tanya okay. and Brian, for bringing us together and making this happen. It was so great to be with you tonight. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank very you both. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.